Amen. You know, there's something about declaration that is powerful in the Spirit. When we declare that we are in agreement with Jesus Christ and the enemy hears that, there is a power to that. That's partly what Jesus was teaching when he taught how to pray. You know, he, he said pray. He was real simple in his prayer. You know, you, you, ever, you ever wonder why, you know, when, when we go to pray, well, God, you know, how, how do I make this something special? And I'm not talking about praying for individual things, but Jesus made it simple. He said, you know, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But I love the next part. Because it really encompasses everything. You know, we ask for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. As you've written it in heaven. As his plan is in heaven. See, as we've talked, he has a plan for all of our, all of our lives. So simply put, when we pray, we go to him and we say, I agree. I agree. I want exactly what you wrote down. I want exactly what you have planned for my life. I want exactly and nothing more, nothing less, but exactly. That's all he said. As we were, as we were going before the Lord for different things, it's, it's almost like you feel like, well, okay, I, I'm not praying right. You know, or may, maybe I need to have different words. I need to remember this, remember that. And God knows we're dust. <laughs> and he makes it simple. He said, just... Just come before me and be in agreement with what I want to do. It's kind of like just saying, okay, God, do what you want. You know, you have to be, any, any mature Christian, any Christian on fire for the Lord comes to a point in their life where they just say, not me anymore, God. Just you. Whatever you want. See, that's what I'm talking about. That's the agreement that we go to before the Father. And that's when we begin to see things happen. Because I, I, think, I think a lot of the work that God has to do in our lives is getting us out of the way. I really believe that's 80% of the work. The other 20% is the enemy. Okay? But 80% of the work is us getting out of the way and just letting God. Because, see, we all... And, and by the way, I'm, I'm speaking to myself. You know, because we all have a vision of how we think things should be, right? So we pray according to that vision. Well, if, if I have a vision for what I want for my life or what I see in my life and, and I think, well, this is what God, you know, perhaps wants for me and, and yeah, it, it, it fits with Scripture and, and it works with this and I've had three dreams about it now and, and, and you know, I had other confirmations that I, am, I know exactly what God wants for my life. So then what happens is the very power that, that we pour into that is prayer. Right? And so we begin praying according to what we think it's going to be. And oftentimes, we're just a little bit off. So it takes time for God to circle around and show us what the truth is. And show us what we really needed to grasp onto in the first place. So, all we have to do 
And sometimes in our thinking it's counterintuitive. But all we have to do is just go before him and say, whatever you want. I'm here as truly a bondservant of you. So whatever you want, I stand in agreement before your court that I want your perfect for my life. Whatever it is. And then receive it. So, anyways. That's, that's what I felt as we were worshiping. That's what I felt the warring was. It's standing in agreement of what he wants to do. See, there's a book for Ignition Church. There's a plan that he has for Ignition. There's a plan for, that he has for each of us individually. So we just go before him and we just say, Yes, Lord. Your will. What you want. I'm not even going to presume to know what that is or put it in a box until you've made it clear or until you've done it. Your will, God. Your will be done. Amen. So, so we're, uh, we're in this series here, What Happened to My Paradise, right? And we, we've, I don't want to go over too much of it from before, but we'll go over last week a little bit. Um, we're talking about what does it look like in the afterlife? What does it look like when we breathe our last breath here or when we're taken up in the rapture? What happens? You know, because really, most Christians have a, a very, very um, small outlook on what that is and, and know very little about it. And yet, the Bible really teaches a fair amount about it. And, and as I spoke last week, there, there are really three phases of our eternity, right? The first phase is when, when you know, because we'll be taken up, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, we'll be taken up before the tribulation. The, the church, the bride of Christ, will be taken out of this world before judgment comes on the world for the sake of Israel. We'll be taken up before that. Now, now, whether we die before that, breathe our last breath, or whether the rapture comes, the, the harpazo, and we're taken up, either way, we are gone before the tribulation if we know Jesus Christ's Savior, and we are part of his bride. So that period of time, from when we are taken up until Jesus Christ returns to this earth, is what I call phase one. Okay? We know it is at least... The length of the tribulation. We know at least it's the length of that. Okay, and it, it, it is probably years beyond that. But that's phase one. In phase one, we talked about last week is the bema seat, or the, or the first week is the bema seat judgment. Okay, that's where it's really a reward ceremony, and that's kind of what this whole series is about. It's about the rewards that we can earn as Christians. Okay, again, to clarify, you don't earn your salvation. We don't earn our golden ticket to heaven, if you will. Okay, that is 100% grace. That is a gift of God. All we have to do is accept it. But our relationship with him, our sanctification, okay, how, how we grow in closeness with Jesus Christ, that is up to us. Jesus will never force relationship on you. Even if you've accepted him as Savior, he will desire it, he will prompt it, he will receive it, but he will never force it. That's up to us. That's what's called sanctification, how we develop our relationship with Jesus Christ. 
beyond our justification, beyond our ticket to heaven, if you will. Okay. So, so this first phase of eternity is the time where the church in all of history, okay, since the church began in, in 2034, roughly, okay, right after Jesus died, ever since then, all those in the church will receive their rewards. They'll go to this, this, uh, this Bema Seat of Christ reward ceremony. But it, it's not just that. There's also a marriage supper of the Lamb, is, is what it's called in Revelation. Marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a celebration. And this will be for all of those who have accepted Christ or, or accepted the Messiah as Savior. Right? Though all of us in heaven, we... Uh, those who, and we're going to get into this a little bit, I, I don't want to go too much on it, but this, that happens in this time period. Okay? Then the second phase is when Jesus Christ returns to this physical earth, and he comes down in victory to claim his throne, which is the throne of David, a physical throne. It will be in physical Jerusalem. It will be on this physical earth. Okay? It's, it's not some metaphoric Dimension somewhere off, you know, in time somewhere. Okay, this, this coming of Jesus Christ is an actual physical coming of Jesus Christ, except this time he comes in power. Unlike the first time that he came. The first time he came, he came as a servant. This time when he comes, he comes with all of us, he comes with all the saints, all the angels, he comes down and he reigns in power for a thousand years. That's called the millennium. You've, you've heard that term before. Thousand year reign of Christ. That is a physical reign of Jesus Christ on this physical earth. Jerusalem will be the center of the, the, everything that goes on in this world. Just like kind of we, we think of, of uh, center points right now might be New York City. Okay, New York City is kind of like the financial center of the, of the world, right? Okay. What's going to happen in that time is Jerusalem will become that. Jesus will rule the world literally on this earth. Okay, that's the second phase. Then Satan is loosed for a time and he gets to deceive people for the last time. And you have this, it really isn't a battle, but you have this final judgment of those who are deceived and who turn away from Christ. Okay? Because remember, there will be humans born during that millennium time. We will not be human because we're already human now. <laughs> and when we go to, to uh, heaven, then we are given our glorified bodies. We will never be human again, if that makes sense. Although, I mean, we're always man or woman, but, but we receive our glorified bodies. We do not have the broken down fleshly bodies that we have right now. But during the millennium, there will be the people that survived the tribulation that did not turn to the, the Antichrist or the beast to worship the beast, and they are saved through the tribulation. They are still in those fleshly bodies. They will have kids, and their kids will have kids, and the kids will have kids. Over a thousand years, you can imagine what the population of this earth is going to become in a thousand years with Jesus Christ reigning. Okay, then what happens is, again, Satan's loose for a time to deceive. Who can he deceive? He cannot deceive you and I. We have already spent our time here on earth, so don't worry that there is a second deception coming. There's not. 
Okay? When, when he is loosed upon the earth to deceive, he deceives those who have been born into that millennium. Okay? And not all of them, but he can, he'll deceive who he deceives. And then this final judgment happens. Okay? Where, where all of those who did not choose Christ in all of history, all the way back to the beginning, and all those throughout that millennium time, they will be judged by the second judgment, which is the great white throne judgment. And that's one we talked about the first week, where that's one you don't want to be at. Okay, because all of those who do not know Christ as Savior are judged at the great white throne. Then that's done. Okay, all of those who, who were in hell and in, in the abyss and, and all of those who did not choose Christ and all of the fallen angels and Satan and the Antichrist and the beast, they are all thrown into this lake of fire for eternity. And I'm not going to get into that because we're focusing on the other part. Those who know Christ as Savior then go into what I call the third phase of eternity and the final phase, at least, that we see in the Word of God. And that is for eternity, we know that a new heaven and a new earth is created, a new Jerusalem is created that comes down, and I'm not going to get into that too much, but I want you to understand that we are talking about the effects of eternity. Okay? It it isn't just the effects of what happens when we go to heaven for, for the few years during the tribulation. It doesn't just affect us in the thousand-year reign of Christ. It affects the eternity beyond that. Now, remember last week we talked about how what we do here on earth is important. It's not just, I am saved, I've accepted Jesus Christ in my heart, and so I'm good, I can do what I want. Okay, I, I can... I could just live my own life. I could do what I want. I don't have to do His will. And by the way, that is true. You do not ever lose your salvation. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 guarantees that we cannot lose our salvation. However, we talked about last week that there is loss. There's loss of rewards. There's loss of what we can earn. You know, Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 3, he talked about how I, I press on to the mark. I, I, I want to make sure that I'm living for Jesus Christ right up until the last moment because I don't want to lose what I've earned. He wasn't talking about salvation because he didn't earn salvation. He didn't earn being justified by the blood of the Lamb. He didn't earn being cleansed by Christ's blood. What he did earn, though, was the relationship that he had with Jesus Christ. He earned rewards from that relationship. And we talked about that last week. How Remember how at the Bema Seat, it, he's going to take all our works, which are represented as gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Okay, Two categories of works, of things that we do, of things that we let God do through us. And they're thrown into the fire. And if they prove out to be gold, silver, or precious stones, then they stand the test of that fire. And they are rewards that then come to us eternally. If they're works that are wood, hay, and stubble, what happens to wood, hay, and stubble, or straw, when it's thrown in the fire? That doesn't last. It gets burned up, right? That is what's going to happen. So, so those works that stand the test 
of that fire then are given to us not just for the millennium, not just for a few years. Here, go enjoy this for a few years, but for eternity, forever. That's why I talked about last week about that, that rope, you know, that, that illustration where you have a rope and it's eternity long, no end to this rope. And then you, cut, you color the first two inches and that's your life. Okay, however many years that is. So let's say a hundred years. That's your life. Compared to eternity, it's nothing. But yet the investment you make as a Christian in your lifetime affects eternity. Not just where you go. Okay, because we all go to paradise. Remember we read last week where, where Jesus said, John the Baptist is, is the best that this world's ever produced. He's the best, he's the top, he's the greatest that this world has ever or ever will produce. And yet he is least in the kingdom of heaven. There's none, all are greater in the kingdom of heaven than John. What he was saying is, look, the kingdom of heaven is different. It's going to be awesome. So no matter what, by going to heaven, you are in paradise. So, so don't misunderstand me. Like, well, you escape, you escape the fire, okay, of hell, but then you got to go and you just sit in a corner for eternity and you're just bored and it's, no, this is paradise. What did the thief say on the cross? The, the thief hadn't lived a life for Christ. He hadn't had any time to let Christ work through him. But what did he say? Take me with you. I want to be with you. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Now I will say, and, and this brings up a little bit different point, but I will say that, that by what the thief did on the cross, and it was recorded in the Gospels, I would say that his testimony has been pretty huge. He has literally affected generations upon generations after him by reading his testimony. It's no different with us. What we do in this lifetime continues on after we're gone in testimony. And it continues to pour out as, as proof of how God works through us. And that all goes toward our reward. So, so again, we talked about last week how, how we, can, we can earn these rewards, but we can lose these rewards. And we talked about what that meant, and I, I do want to point this out because this is where a lot of people go wrong. A lot of people go wrong in thinking, well, I've got to do this, 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 and this, and if I do these things, then I'm going to have rewards in heaven. And, and we can get really messed up if we look at it, because see, it, look at it that way, because see, salvation or justification is not works-based, you can't earn your salvation, right? But we say you can earn rewards. But in the same respect, you cannot do it by doing it yourself. I can't choose to say, well, I want to earn a reward by being a pastor. I'm going to be a pastor, and I'm going to help the poor and help the sick, and I'm going to do this and that. I'm going to give my tithe. I'm going to do all these lists of ten things. And if I do these ten things, I am going to have reward in heaven for eternity. See, that is works-based. And nothing in the Word of God ever teaches that. What it says 
is we come in agreement with him and let him do it. Our only responsibility, Matthew 6.33, our only responsibility is to seek him and let him do it. So the real works, okay, if I were giving to the poor, okay, that's that's a work and, and it's a physical thing that no matter where my heart's at, if I'm doing it, I'm doing it. I'm helping that poor person, right? Let's say, let's say I'm giving something to them. However, when we stand before the behemoth seat of Christ, Christ looks at our heart. What was the intent of us doing that? Was that were we doing that for a reward? Were we doing that to look good? Jesus, Jesus said, like the Pharisees do when they fast, they make themselves look like they haven't eaten, and they, they say all these flowery prayers in public and everything else. That seems righteous. Okay, but that's not what it is. It's about seeking Jesus Christ and letting Him. If, if, if I am seeking Jesus Christ and I just want His absolute everything for my life and He leads me to this homeless person and has me give them something to help them out, see, the physical part of it's the same, but the intent is different. See, I never sought anything out except Jesus Christ. And as I seek Him out, whatever He leads me to do, if I do that in obedience, that is what we are rewarded for. We're rewarded literally for drawing close to Him. That's it. That's why the person who is in the most remote places in the world and never sees hardly anybody their whole life, they have the same opportunity that you and I do that see millions of people. It's because it's not about what we do. It's about who we develop a relationship with and how we seek Him in relationship. He'll do whatever He wants through us. You know, I've told this many times, I never thought I'd be a pastor, certainly never thought I'd preach. I loved being a worship leader. Did that and never planned to do anything different. But it's interesting how when I really started seeking God personally and saying, whatever you want, God, it all changed. It all changed. He changed my whole life. He, he literally took the bucket of my life and turned it upside down and said, okay, okay, I'll, I'll work through you. Just trust me. He wants to do that with each of you. He wants to do that with each of us where we seek Him, period. And we let Him do whatever He wants to do through us. I think there are people sitting here this morning that would be so shocked as to the direction of your life if God had full control. It's like, if you took a picture of that person, you know, years from now and could see what that looked like, you wouldn't even recognize them. I, I can tell you that from my own case. If I had a snapshot of what I am right now and how God's using me right now and I was able to look at that five years ago or ten years ago, I, well, it kind of looks the same, but no, that's not me. Right? Because God, His plan, gets us out of the way. And that's what He wants. So last week we talked about... Um, uh, Matthew 25, and we talked about the, the parable of the talent. Remember, we went over that where, where there were three servants, and each servant, one was given one talent, one was given two, one was given five. 
Okay, the one that was five turned it, and talent is a measure of money. That one who had five turned it into ten. The one who had two turned it into four. The one who had one was afraid of the master and just hid it in the ground. And, and remember when, when the master came back and, and judgment was placed on those servants, all three were servants. In this, in this example, all three knew the master. They were all bond slaves of the master. They were all owned by him. So the parable is, he is speaking to Christians, but what happened to the one who hid the talent that he had? That talent was taken from him, given to the one who had ten, and then that servant was sent outside. And we talked about, be careful of the language that you read there, because it, it says, be thrown out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? And we always associate that with hell and think, okay, well, this can't be talking about all Christians. But we went through some of the Greek last week. That's not what it says. It's, it's actually into the less light. Into that, that word for darkness means shadiness, means less light. So thrown out into the less light, thrown away from the master is effectively what happened in that. Get that person further away from me. They have not earned the right to be here in proximity to me. Okay, and that's, that's what we talked about last week. I want to talk about another one this week. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 19. On the surface, as we look at this, this is a, this is, most, most people look at this and think, okay, well, this is Luke's version of the parable of the talents, right? And this, this one's called the parable of ten minas. Now, minas is, a, is another measurement. It can be a financial measurement. It can also be, be a weight measurement, but it's, it's all around the financial realm. So, so it's like parable of the ten minas could be a parable of the thousand dollars. Same with talents, same thing. Talents was a measure. It was a measure of money or a measure of, uh, of, of weight. So, okay, so far, well, we're the same here, right? And, but, but something I want you to understand, because we're going to pull some things out of this that aren't in the other one. There are some things that, that match that are the same, but then there are some things in here we're going to pull out that are going to be different. And I want you to notice this is not the same parable. And it's important right from the get-go to understand that. Because you read it and you think on the surface, well, this is the same thing, but it's not. And, and I want to point it out, if, if you look back in Matthew... Okay, Matthew, when Jesus was telling the parable to his disciples, he was already in Jerusalem. The triumphal entry had already happened. And they were there and he was sharing with them this parable. Okay, in Luke it's different. He's not in Jerusalem yet. In fact, he is at Zacchaeus' house. Remember Zacchaeus? Isn't he the one that we, a little man that we love? Yeah, okay. Sorry, that's my childhood growing up there. Um, but he's at Zacchaeus' house in Jericho. This was before he went to Jerusalem. This was before the triumphal entry. As a matter of fact, it was just before it. So he's telling this story twice. Luke wrote down one time that he wrote the story, or told the story. Matthew wrote down a different time. And you see subtle differences in the story. Why? Well, did Jesus just forget how he told the story the first time? No. It's because he intends for us to pick up little things from each one. 
I would imagine he probably told some of these parables tens or dozens of times. And, and, and you know, that's why we see certain things recorded that, well, that doesn't quite jive with, with this one's account. And there are many other examples of that. But, but in Luke chapter 19, verse 11... Um, just to give you a little bit of background, okay, he, he's in Jericho, and he said, as they heard these things, they're at Zacchaeus' house, and they're talking, and, and, and Jesus is talking to, you know, today salvation has come to this house at, at Zacchaeus' house. So as they're talking, verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. It's important to understand something out of verse 11. Okay? They, being the disciples and all the people there, not just the twelve, but all of the, those that are following Jesus, they're assuming we're headed to Jerusalem. He is going to make his victorious stand and he is going to rule this earth. That's what's in their mind. When they think of the kingdom of heaven, they are having in their mind what we know to be when Jesus Christ returns and sets up his millennial kingdom. Okay, They're expecting it right here. That was what all of them expected. Not, and not, not just those who followed Christ, but the Pharisees and everything else. That's why it was such a turnaround when he went a triumphal entry into Jerusalem and one week later he's being crucified. Because he didn't take it by storm. He didn't take it victoriously by force. Right? He came there to die. And even though he had told his disciples that, they just didn't get it. That's why they all left him when he went on trial. You know, that's why Peter, I'll never leave you. Where'd Peter go? And they all left him. Why? Because this isn't what they expected. Even though they were told this, they didn't expect this. So, so remember, as he's telling this parable, he's talking about the afterlife. He's talking about the kingdom of God. Literally, he is talking about the thousand-year reign. Okay, the victorious thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. So as, as we read into this, then, then keep that in mind. Jesus is giving a picture of the millennium. Verse 12, He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return again. Kind of sounds like Jesus Christ, right? He went into a far country. As a man, he went about as far away as you could go. He went to heaven. <laughs> and that's where he is right now, right? To receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. And just think of it as, as you know, a measure of investment or money or something. And he said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a de delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. So all of a sudden we, we already recognize something's different than last week, the parable of the talents. We have a fourth group now. We don't just have three servants like was it, what was in Matthew 25, but now we have this group of people that hate the master, that, that literally hate him and do not want him to reign over them. This, this kingdom that he went to go get. 
Verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first became before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Notice he didn't say, Because you have been faithful in little, you'll be given much. He said you'll be given authority over ten cities. You'll be given the, the right to rule over ten cities. Verse 18, And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Now, now recognize something else here. Unlike Matthew 25, they were all given the same thing. They were all, all given one. And you had different ones do different things, right? So this is a little different than Matthew 25. Verse 20, Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. In other words, you're a, you are a tough boss. You have high expectation. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, this is the master saying to the servant, I will condemn you with your own words. And, and that word condemn there means to prove out doesn't mean, be careful of some of the language. When you read this, you think, condemn, okay, he's going to go to hell. No, this isn't condemnation about hell. This is to prove out what he did. I will prove you with your own words. You wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe or a tough boss taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow, why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. In other words, why didn't you at least do the bare minimum that you didn't even have to do anything for? Why didn't you just do at least the bare minimum? Because then I would have at least had that. And he said to them who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. It's, it's that idea of fairness. Lord, that's not fair. He has ten. Why, why would I give it to Why should you give it to him when he already has ten? What does the Lord say? I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. There's an important thing to understand there. See, it didn't just get rid of what God had given this servant. God's going to use it regardless. In the thousand year reign of Christ, there are jobs to be done. There are authorities that will be given when we as the bride do not spend time developing our relationship with Jesus Christ so He could develop us into the leaders that we need to be during that time frame. He's going to give it to somebody else. He's not going to, okay, well, we'll just dissolve that position. See, we think of heaven like, well, God does everything in heaven. I don't need to do anything. I just kind of float around and, and worship and, and, you know, eat. <laughs> you know, 
I, I don't know about you, but that might be cool for a week. <laughs> but then it, that seems pretty boring to me. God didn't wire us that way. Even in our own lives, if we don't have something that we are passionate about and going after, what happens? We, there's sickness comes on. There's depression comes on. Our thoughts go into all kinds of crazy different places. Why do you think it's going to be any different in heaven? See, we, we have this idea that when, when, when we die and when we go to heaven, well, God just kind of does everything. You know, and, and, and I said last week this myopic view because we, we just can't quite picture it. I just know I won't be, I'll just kind of be floating there and people will give me grapes. <laughs> that's, that's really silly when you think about it. Especially when he instilled in us drive. When he instilled in us passion. You know, the Bible, and we'll, we'll perhaps get into this a little bit later uh, if he continues this series, but, but as you read in the Word of God, there are many, many positions. Just like you have, there, there's not one worship leader in the world, right? There's not one. There are thousands and tens of thousands upon thousands. Now, I don't know how many churches there are, but if you, if you figure half the churches have a worship leader, that's a lot of worship leaders. Why do we think it'll be any different than in heaven? Except that there will probably be more. You know, just like Adam was expected to tend the garden, when we're in heaven, we will be expected to tend what is put in our possession. In, in our control. He said here, he said, for, for the one who turned his one mina into ten, he said, now I will place you in authority over ten cities. What does that mean? There are people in those cities. Even in the afterlife. You know, in Revelation 22, it says, to those who conquer, I will, that, that you will reign with me. Reign over what? If there are no people to reign over, wait, reign? What do you mean reign? See, that's the thing, is the, the eternity will have people, just like we have people now, except not human, obviously. We will be all be in our glorified bodies after the millennium. And during the millennium, there will still be rain like it is here on earth. There will still be positions of organization. There will still be grass that needs to be cut. Just because we go into heaven, God doesn't... Perfect grass. <laughs> never has to be cut again it will remain perfect well if that's the case then Adam's probably pretty upset because he had to tend the garden now that was also before the fall so it wasn't like he had to tend the garden because man these weeds are coming up everywhere no think of it kind of the opposite of that Man, these, these fruit trees are just growing all over the place. If I, if I don't prune it here and there, it's just going to get out of control. So he had to work the garden. We're going to have to work what God places in our control in our hands. And, and I think what, what these rewards have to do with is the level of passion that we have towards something can then be played out in eternity. You know, if you, if you have a, a passion for, uh, for worship, 
We talked about that earlier. As a worship leader, you have a passion for worship and you're given that position in heaven, then that passion is to develop other worshipers. See, we, we think of heaven like, well, okay, once you get to heaven, you never learn anything. You kind of know everything. Where do we get that? It, we get it from the phrase that says, you will have the mind of Christ. Okay? It doesn't say the knowledge of Christ. Understand, we will spend eternity learning what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. I don't think we will ever come to the point where we fully know His sacrifice. I don't think we will ever come to the point where we will fully know each other in heaven and all the people that we get to meet. Heaven is going to be an exciting place. Heaven is going to be a place where there is no sin, there is no effectiveness of the enemy, but don't assume that there's no passions there. I'm convinced I'm going to be able to ski there without falling. I I keep getting excited about golf, but then I think, you know, how boring would it be to literally shoot 18 every time you play golf? For those of you who golf, you know what I'm talking about. The best you could do is a hole in one, and there's 18 holes. So what did you shoot today? I shot an 18. Oh, me too. (laughs) That would get a little boring after a while. Although, who knows, maybe he won't increase our talents like that. Maybe, maybe you know, we don't all just have this perfect capability. Kind of makes sense, right? You know, so, so open your mind as you begin to look into what heaven is like. We need to get a view that's not distorted. We need to understand that our investment here, that one mina that I was given here, I need to invest that into the best place I can to have the maximum return for eternity. And and that's what he's saying here. He's saying, you've invested well, so I put you in charge of ten cities. I give you an authority over ten cities. This, whatever this authority is. We'll look later. There, there are other things that we can earn as well. Revelation 3 says that to those who conquer, I will make you a pillar in my temple. I talked about that last week briefly. Where, uh, what that means is a support in the temple. In the thousand year reign of Christ, remember I said Jerusalem is the center point of the, of the world. Jesus will rule out of Jerusalem, okay? And he will be there in the temple. There won't be a holy of holies in the temple because he is the holy of holies. He will reign from that temple. Well, you know what? The temple doesn't, Jerusalem doesn't go away after the thousand year reign. It gets recreated. And and not to get into this, but it it, it actually is recreated as almost, almost like a separate planet, because it doesn't actually touch earth. It comes down to earth. But it doesn't actually touch earth. But Jesus Christ will be in Jerusalem. And Revelation talks about to those who conquer, they can, as a matter of fact, let's go there. Revelation 22. Uh, you know what? No, I'm getting kind of off course here. It's uh, not a surprise. Um... Yeah, Revelation 22. 
What the heck? <coughs> yeah, I am getting way off track. That's that's not going to go where I need to go. Well, it, we will do that next time because I, I I need to really. I really need to expand on that, and it, it's gonna it's gonna cut out what we need to go through here. But Revelation 22 verse 12. This is important to understand because we look at this and we 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 ask then, how do I become a good investor of what God has given me? How do I go about doing what I need to do? to receive the fullest reward that I can receive. Let's read it, starting with verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. Now, he is all-inclusive there. He's not talking just about Christians. He's talking about all people, okay, to, for them to receive according to what they have done. Because first and foremost, out of the great white throne judgment, what do they look at? They look at, is their name in the Lamb's book of life? Did they accept Jesus Christ as Savior? If they didn't, then they're judged according to their works, which all of us fail. Every one of us fail that. But if our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, then we're covered, we're justified by Jesus Christ. So then our, our judgment if you will, is based on our reward. It's, it's a reward system, not a judgment of life or death. Okay, So he's talking about all here to repay each one for what he has done. Verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 14, blessed are those, and this is what I want you to get, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city, this is the city, Jerusalem, in the millennium and after, by the gates. Verse 15, and this is the one that's, that's uh, somewhat tough to understand. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I'm not going to get into that one too much, but I'm going to, I want you to understand that that isn't necessarily talking about those in hell. Okay? Because hell, by, by, by the point that he's talking about this after the great white throne judgment, hell is cast into the lake of the fire, which is then forgotten about. It's gone. It's history. Okay? Verse 15 may be talking about something else. Turn back then. To, well, before we... Understand one thing here. Before we turn to Revelation 7, understand one thing. There's a difference between those who washed their robes and those who haven't. This is listed in Revelation 22. This is after the great white throne judgment. This is after the last thing. And we go into a final eternity. He's talking about those who have washed their robes. That is something that we choose to do. Remember it said in verse 14, Blessed are those who 
wash their robes. Not blessed are those who let me wash their robes. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Okay, turn to Revelation chapter 7. There's another group of people who washed their robes. And we're going to go through real quickly what it means to wash robes, but I want you to see that this is an important thing that happens in the body of Christ. Revelation chapter 7 verse 13 says this, Then one of the elders addressing me, and this, this is John up in heaven, by the way. This is John... In the third heaven, when all of the seals were, you know, the, the Lamb's Book of Life was opened and all the, the seven-sealed book was opened, and he's going through all this vision of prophecy of judgment and everything else, okay? But he said in verse 13, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? And he's picturing pointing to some people. Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's important to understand that they washed their robes. What does that mean? They lived a life of sanctification. They lived a life where they trusted their Savior to do in them what needed to be done. Now, understand, this is a very different time in, in well, not in history, in future, in prophecy. This is the tribulation time. In fact, this is the period of time called the Great Tribulation, the second three and a half years of the tribulation where the world is being judged for Israel's sake. And what he's saying here is these people in white robes, they're the ones who washed their robes out of the great tribulation. Now, we won't get into it, but I want you to understand that in the tribulation period, salvation is different than it is with you and I right now. Okay? You and I, we can pray, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're saved, we believe in a coming Messiah. It is not that way in the tribulation. Simply because the Holy Spirit is taken back. The Holy Spirit is no longer moving about the earth like it does right now. Okay? And to be saved in the, in the tribulation, and, and I know this kind of doesn't go with the Left Behind series and all that. I apologize. Is it Tim LaHaye that wrote that? I can't remember. Apologize, but... But it's not about accepting, you know, Jesus Christ into your heart as Savior. It's actually very much like it was in the Old Testament. You have to believe and you have to make a choice with your life. See, in the Old Testament, you had to believe. If you were not a Jew, you had to convert to Judaism effectively. You couldn't become that nationally, but you could become that in your beliefs. You could go to temple. You could do the sacrifices. You could do these things. You believe in a coming Messiah. Okay? Well, in this case, after we're gone, during the tribulation, the Messiah's already come. In this case, they're saved by doing one thing. By not accepting the mark of the beast. By not accepting the the judicial rule of the Antichrist. That is how 
they wash their robes. Now, you can imagine in a time where the Antichrist, you imagine Hitler times a hundred, or Hitler times a thousand. You know, what did Hitler do with people that didn't like him? He went after them. He wanted to not just separate them, he wanted to destroy them. That's how it's going to be in the tribulation period for those who believe in Jesus Christ. See, they don't just say a prayer and then all of a sudden they get to go to heaven. See, during the tribulation, they have to wash their robes white. Their sanctification is living a life, many of them, of martyrdom where they will be killed because they do not accept the mark of the beast. Those are the ones that through that process, they washed their robes white. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1. This idea of washing, you know, we we keep thinking of the, the fact that, well, the Lord washes me clean. I, I don't do any of that. The Lord does that. And that's true for salvation. But for sanctification, we play a part in that. We have to let Him do it. We have to seek Him. It says here in verse 16 of chapter 1 of Isaiah, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the even... Understand, it's not talking about go take a shower. Okay? It's not talking about that. It says, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. I want you to understand this is different than salvation. Because in your justification, when you accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, you were washed clean. You were completely washed clean. When the Father looks at you, He sees through a Jesus filter. And you're perfect. But understand, to our Savior, to the one who has been given all authority in heaven and earth, to the one who makes the choices of how He is going to rule His earthly kingdom, see, He sees your sin. He sees that even though you have been washed in His blood and you have been given this salvation that will never be taken away because the Holy Spirit seals it, He sees what we do and what it does is it begins to cause a divide in our relationship with Him. See, as we do not follow Jesus Christ in relationship once we are saved, that divide gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's not because He's walking away from us. It's because we're turning and we're walking away from Him. And He's saying, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. He said, when you do this, 
learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression. These are all things that He does when we seek Him. And He says, when you do this, even those sins become, that are red like crimson, become like wool. They become forgiven. You know, if, if we never need forgiveness once we're saved, why would Jesus have us ask for it? Why? What's the point? If we can't sin after salvation, why, why do we need to ask forgiveness for it? It's because we are still in this fleshly body. We do sin. If anyone in here, once you're saved, if you've never sinned since you've been saved, I really want to talk to you. (laughs) We sin. But see, God gave us a way to have purity in our relationship with Him. That is the sanctification process. As I seek Him, I'm saved, but I want to be close to Him. As I'm drawing closer to Him, it cannot be done without forgiveness. Jesus, whatever you, you know, you laid this on my heart that I did. I have this pride in this area. Father, Jesus, just forgive me for that because I want to be close to you. And see, I cannot be close to the Father if I am not close to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus. And the Father may look at me through a Jesus filter, but you know as well as I do, when we know somebody, you know, if you know a friend of the President of the United States, then you might have a chance to meet that person. You might have a chance to get in closer with that person. Why? Because of who you know. Well, we know the King of the universe whose Father listens to Him. So the closer we draw to Jesus Christ, the closer effectively we draw to the Father. Does that make sense? But it's sin that keeps us away. So that's why it says in here, wash your robes. Turn to to Zechariah chapter 3. And we, we went through this, I don't know, a couple of months ago in a different lesson. But this is also talking about washing our robes clean. I want you to understand if you get nothing else from today, understand that this is up to you. Your relationship with Jesus Christ after salvation is up to what you choose to let it be. Not what He does in your life. Jesus is not going to manipulate your life to the point where, okay, you'll just follow me. I'm going to manipulate it till you just follow me. The only time He does that is when our hearts seek Him. Because I I can tell you from personal experience that at the age of 22 years old, I, I went a different path than what He wanted me to go. And yet my my heart loved Him. My heart wanted Him, but I, I just didn't want to deal with this junk okay, that, that I saw in the Christian world. And so I went a different way. A way that I could control. But in my heart I wanted Him. So because my heart wanted Him, Jesus then began to do a work in my life to draw me back to an understanding of who He is. 
But see, it has to begin with us. You have to know in your heart that the most important thing to you is Jesus Christ. The most important thing to you is your relationship with Him. And then to draw close, we wash. So, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 3, this was Joshua. This isn't the Moses and Joshua guy. This is Joshua the high priest. Joshua is standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. Okay? Understand, he's the high priest. Okay, in our terminology today, this guy's saved. <laughs> he believes in a coming Messiah. He knows God intimately, right? And yet he has filthy garments as he stands before the Lord. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with the garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, and this is, this is something I want you to get, because remember what's happened. He stood before the Lord saying, Yes, Lord, cleanse me. I wash my garments. You make them clean. I give you my yes. I stand before you to do with me whatever you want. And what does he say? In verse 6, And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. What was he? He was before the throne of God. He wasn't on earth. He was standing before the throne of God. And, and what he's saying is the same thing Jesus says to us today. If you stand before me and you seek me intimately, you seek me in relationship like a best friend, you seek me with your whole heart, if you do that, I will wash your clothes. I will clean your heart. I will draw you in relationship to myself, Jesus says. But he doesn't end there. See, there's reward. He said, if you do this, I will place you in charge. I will place you in charge because you've earned it. I will place you in charge as my representative... Not just in this earth. See, that's what you have to understand. He wasn't talking about just in this earth. He said, I will give you charge of my... Uh, what's, it, what's he say here? You will, you will walk in my ways and keep my charge. Then you shall rule my house, which is the house of Israel. The nation of Israel. He was the high priest. You will rule Israel, but what... It didn't end there. What else did he say? And you will have charge of my courts. I will give you the right to access this among those who are standing here. Who, who was standing there? We just saw it. The angels. See, this is not just on this earth. This is in the kingdom of heaven. 
what you do here holds measure of what not only happens here, but happens in eternity. It's important to understand that. See, we went, when we don't seek Jesus Christ in relationship, there is a greater loss than you could ever imagine. You won't lose your salvation, but you lose what could have been. Imagine that, that servant who was given the one mina and turned it into ten, and then it basically was given another one, eleven. Imagine if that servant decided not to do it. Decided not to invest that. Let's say that servant had fear like the other one. I had fear of stepping out of my comfort zone where God's trying to lead me. I had fear of doing that, so I'm not going to. I'm, I'm going to stay within my bubble. I'm going to stay where I feel comfortable, where I can control things. I'm, I'm just going to stay here. I, I, know, I know God will understand because He's an understanding, merciful God. And, and by the way, He will. He does. He loves you desperately. But see, what you cancel yourself out of is the reward. That servant who then was given, who earned the ten and was given the eleventh one, he effectively was given the rule or the authority over cities. There will be some that are given authority over nations. Nations don't end with the coming of Christ. Hate to tell you. As a matter of fact, I used to think that, well, I know there are nations during the millennium, but after that, there are no nations after that. And, and I, I just was so wrong. Because <laughs> that's not what the Bible says. Because, see, after the great white throne judgment, after there's no more Satan, there's no more unsaved, there's no more sin, there's no more you know, condemnation, there's no more anything like that, and it's gone, it's out of our minds. We remember it no more. The Bible still says, in the new Jerusalem, the nations upon the earth and the kings upon the earth will come to Jerusalem to pay homage to it. Wait, what? You mean there's still going to be a world system? Yes. There's still going to be nations. There's still going to be authorities. There's still going to be governments. Just without all the sin. Just without the enemy. There's still going to be operations where there is required leadership. Most people on earth, when they want to get ahead, they, they seek leadership, right? You get in your work, you want, to, you want to work, do better, so you can be in leadership in that. It's no different in heaven. The only difference is where you earn that is here. You can't earn it there because the rewards are eternal. And the time to earn it is when we can't see Him face to face. When it's required to believe it by faith. When we, when we build this church together, why? Because we believe He's there. Because we know He speaks to us. We believe. We, uh, I know He speaks to me. Can I show you a picture of he and I just hanging out with my arm around him? No. That'd be really cool, by the way, if I could. 
can't do that. Why? Because I have to accept Him by faith. It is my faith that He uses to drive my sanctification. So your level of faith in your own life is going to be the key in how God drives your intimacy with Him. Your building of a relationship with Him. See, if you can't believe that He speaks to you, or that He will speak to you, or that He can speak to you, then there's a barrier that you have in your relationship with Him. You can only go so far. And that's where I was for 40 years. Been saved 43 years. See, if, if, if Alex and I, we've been, we, we've been saved. We've been married for 28 years. If I could not hear from her physically, if I could not know her thoughts, if all I could read was what she wrote down to me, there would be a barrier in our relationship, right? Makes sense. Why do you think God's any different? See, that's what I thought for 40 years until I began to understand, wow, you do want to talk to me. Not just in your word, but you want to have conversations with me. So, so in seeking that in Him, He will open up your relationship to Him. He will help you to understand what it means to trust Him in everything. Because then your view will begin to change from this earth into that eternity. And that's an important place to be. Once we get that as a church, once we understand what he's got for us, that perfect 18 golf game, once we understand what he's got for us in eternity, the passions that we're going to have in the afterlife, not just for him, but for each other, for doing our work, for doing the best at something that we want to do, once we really grasp that and understand that, it's going to change the church. And I don't mean just ignition. I mean the bride, the church, the overall bride of Christ. It's going to change who we are. It's going to change how we let the Lord work through us. And it's going to change how the world sees us. That's really, really important to understand. Because this isn't just about us. But it's about those who don't get to see what we see. Amen. Let's bow our heads.